This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 13. Road Trip. Far from being the unsuspecting dolt that Thorne would have had him, Richard was perfectly aware of the purpose in Judith's note. The little strategy by which he was reminded that he had a rendezvous come autumn amused him. In the security of his resolution, he was flattered rather than alarmed for he had quite made up his mind that he was not going to marry again. But the letter, carrying a delicate whiff of the scent she always used, brought Judith sharply before him. The elegant handwriting, expressing concern and affection for his little friend, revived the old feeling of gratitude. Judith was very kind, much too kind to be hurt. He had intended simply forgetting any vague promise to see her again. Now he realized the frank and gentlemanly thing to do was to call upon her and in a kind and impersonal way make it clear that he had no intention of remarrying. Perhaps he would take the children with him so that she could not possibly misconstrue his visit. He would go to the city as soon as harvest was over. Wheat harvest dominated the month of July. The Tomlinsons owned the only reaping and threshing machines in the district. And it was the custom of the neighboring farmers to lend their services at Timberley in return for the loan of the back-saving machinery for cutting their own crops. When the Tomlinsons' grain had been harvested, the whole crew moved on to the next farm, and so on in rotation. Women accompanied their men to assist in preparation of the harvest dinners, which were cooked in the farmhouse kitchens and carried out to hastily construct tables under the trees. Children accompanied mothers, and the whole season was in the nature of a prolonged community picnic. After the reaping came the threshing, the great horsepower threshing machine, driven round and round by twelve tough mules to the accompaniment of an infernal din, threshed out a crop in two days that would have taken a week's toil on the threshing floor. Many a man in his prime could recall riding horse at the threshing when the grain had been tramped out by hooves on the floor of a barn. By the 1st of August, the crop was garnered and sacked, the portion reserved for the family's use stored in the barn, the portion to be marketed hauled to Woodridge or the mill on Big Raccoon. Young Will usually attended to the marketing of the Tomlinson's wheat. It was a job for which Richard had no enthusiasm. The drama of the harvest he loved the mounting tension of the rush to the outstrip, the ever-present threat of a rain thrilled and exhilarated him. But the business of selling the crop was anticlimactic. He was glad that his younger brother seemed to enjoy it. The second week in August brought a lull which seemed an admirable opportunity for his trip to the city. He announced his intention one evening at supper then waited for repercussions, for seldom did a farmer journey 20 miles from home in summer. 
But his mother only said, I'm afraid you'll find it pretty warm this time of year. His brother gave him oblique look, which oddly Richard felt called upon to answer. I'm going for the purpose of giving the children an outing. I've always promised to take them to Terre Haute, and summer's the time to do it when the roads are good. You won't mind the heat, will you, boys? Ricky and Raji were immediately incoherent with excitement. Anne Tomlinson was warningly that Richard didn't know what he was letting himself in for. Those two are a handful anywhere. They'll get themselves killed and you too. You'd better wait till one of your sisters can go with you. Thorn will go with me. She's all the help I need. Thorn's nothing but a child herself. I'm used to the cities, Thorn interrupted eagerly. I've gone about city streets since I was smaller than Raji. I'll keep tight hold of each boy, Miss Anne, so Richard will be free to attend to his business. Richard said hastily that he had no business to attend to. Young Will and Jesse Moffat exchanged glances. Nancy Turner happened to be present, and suddenly, to Richard's chagrin, she proposed that she go with them. There was nothing under the circumstances with which he could have more readily dispensed than Nancy's company, but he could not refuse in the face of his mother's approval. That's a splendid idea, Nancy, said Miss Anne. You can help with the children. I won't have a minute's peace if they're turned loose with Richard. They're sure to be run over by those fast horses in the city. You talk as though I weren't responsible, Mother. When you get your mind on something, Richard, you forget everything around you. The idea seemed to persist that some errand was taking him to town. They were up at times next morning. Nancy spent the night with Thorne, and the two girls dressed in fluttering haste to be ready by the time the carriage and team were at the door. The little boys, so heavy with sleep that Thorne had to dress them, were stowed away on the roomy back seat, and Nancy, by right of seniority, appropriated the friend's seat beside Richard. To that gentleman's complete exhaustion, it was a five-hour drive to tear hout, and her tongue outran the horses all the way. On the back seat, Thorne and the children slept peacefully. As soon as they reached the city, the boys awoke and demanded to eat. They had been too excited for breakfast, and now they were ravenous. As it was nearly noon, Richard put the horses in the livery stable and piloted his little crowd to a quiet family eating house on Wabash Avenue. Dinner at a restaurant was an unprecedented experience for at least three of his charges, and would consume, he hoped, considerable time. It would be bad manners to call upon Miss Judith before two o'clock. But long before the meal was over, he felt as though the expedition had already lasted for weeks. The day was scorching. The children were restless, excited, noisy, thirsty, and, embarrassingly, tormented by the demands of nature. They discovered a water cooler with a fascinating little spigot which turned on and off and as they imbibed so much liquid that it seemed to their harassed young father that it went right through them. He made so many trips out of the room, with first one, then the other, that Nancy giggled insufferably, and even Thorne teased him. They were all in a state of hilarity, but he was too weary by this time to smile. When he wiped Raji's nose and discovered too late that he had used a napkin instead of his handkerchief, he groaned. 
six hours of caring for his own children had worn him threadbare. He wondered how his mother had put up with them all these years. Upon their demand at the conclusion of the meal for further entertainment, he explained somewhat grimly that they were going to see a lady. Thorne had received a note from their friend, Miss Judith. They remembered Miss Judith, didn't they? Inviting her to call. Of course, Thorne couldn't go alone, so they were all going with her. Thorne's clear eyes widened rather blankly as she heard herself thus credited with the purely theoretical motive for the excursion. But loyally, she made no comment. They walked through the broiling heat to Miss Purit's boarding house and stood about in languid attitudes of boredom while Richard rang the bell. Calling on a schoolteacher was not their idea of making holiday. Watching their perspiring disappointment, he had half-wished he had not come. It was a fool's errand anyway. He had a mind even now to return to Timberley without seeing Judith. He was in no mental state for the delicate mission before him. He would likely make an ass of himself and be ordered from the house. He hoped, fervently, she was not in. Thorn hoped so too. But Judith was in, and very glad indeed to see her friends from Timberley. One glance at Richard's face was sufficient to tell her why he had come, why he had fortified himself with four limp, bedraggled children. He had thought better of his rash commitment and had come to withdraw it. Like a forewarned general, she swiftly altered her own strategy to meet the attack. Leading the little party around to the cooler side porch, she listened to Nancy's chatter and questioned the boys and Thorne about their summer activities until her adult caller had time to cool off. Then she brightly suggested that the young people make a visit to the ice cream parlor just a block away. They served delicious cream and ices and had cunning little tables and chairs at which to eat them. At the mere mention of ice cream, the children revived astonishingly. Ice cream was an unheard of treat. Before Richard could collect his scattered faculties and fumble for his wallet, Judith had sped up to her room and back and pressed the money into Nancy's plump, moist palm. They were gone, the four of them, with Richard's tardy dollar bill and thrusted to Thorn and Richard flushed with embarrassment, putting his wallet back into his pocket while Judith laughed at his discomfiture. Don't look so concerned, Mr. Tomlinson. I'm not too impoverished to treat the children to ice cream. Besides, this is a special occasion. When they've come so far to see me, I should feel quite distressed if I had to let them go back without some little gesture of hospitality. She looked so cool and neat in her crisp green chambray. She had been so gracious and clever in her handling of his dilemma that he looked at her admiringly, wondering if he were making a mistake in letting this woman go. Miss Judith, I can't tell you. He stammered boyishly and fanned his hot face with his hat. He felt crumpled and untidy beside her immaculate daintiness. If he had ever known that his damp hair, curling moistly in the heat, gave him the artless charm of his son Ricky, he might have been even more dubious of his mission than he was. He inquired naively if there was any place less public where they could talk. 
Judith led him into what was elegantly referred to as the garden, but was literally Mrs. Pruitt's backyard. There was grass, however, and a pergola covered with Virginia creeper. They took refuge here from the torrid sunshine, and he tried to summon the thoughts he had so carefully arranged the night before. It was a hopeless endeavor. No sooner had they entered the privacy of the little summer house than he found Judith's cool fingers touching his, and her face uptilted temptingly close to his lips. Richard, she whispered, don't have to tell me why you've come, I know. Only I didn't expect you so soon. And then? He never quite knew how it happened. She was in his arms, and he was kissing her with a roughness that was a compound of embarrassment, August temperature, and long pent-up desires. Not for years had he touched a woman. Never had he held one like this. He realized with a shock that he had wanted to kiss her ever since that night at the theater. Somewhere in the giddy tumult of his mind, whence rationale thought had retreated, a disquieting note sounded clear for a single second. It was the instinctive knowledge that this woman who yielded so eagerly to his embrace was not the artless lover that she seemed, but a schemer, wily and ruthless. Then his own generous nature rose, indignant, at such heresy, and drowned it in fresh ardor. There were footsteps in the yard, and Judith hastily released herself, whispering, Mrs. Pruitt, she saw us come in here, and she's followed us quick. We must set her straight, or she'll be telling all sorts of things. Before he had time to envision what Mrs. Pruitt might tell more incriminating than the truth, he found himself drawn across the lawn and given a rather startling introduction to the redoubtable landlady. Mrs. Pruitt, I want you to meet my fiancé. In his confusion, he was conscious that Mrs. Pruitt was not the only recipient of this sensational announcement. Around the corner of the house came four disheveled children, replete with candy and ice cream. They had spent Richard's money as well as Judith's, and now they were surfeited and ready to go home. They entered the yard in time to hear Judith add, Mr. Tomlinson and I are going to be married in the fall. They stood in silence while Mrs. Pruitt beamed and congratulated and crumpled an overdue board bill in her pocket. Then Nancy found voice and began gurgling. Oh, Richard, are you really going to marry Miss Judith? How thrilling! And went off into a series of giggles which brought a furious frown to Richard's face and a brusque reply in confirmation. His small sons, not understanding the trend of events, but not liking their father's scowl, set up a cry and blubbered petulously for Grandma. Altogether, there was quite a commotion before the young Tomlinsons were quieted and made ready for departure. Richard had only a sketchy last moment with Judith, but she managed to make it conclusive. I'll send in my resignation to Staunton immediately. We'll be married in October. Tell your mother not to worry about a thing. I'll make all the plans. 
He bade her goodbye in a kaleidoscopic fog and looked about for Thorn, who had disappeared. It was some time before she was found behind the grape arbor, being very sick all by herself. Mrs. Pruitt said it was the ice cream. Judith said it was the heat. Richard said nothing. He watched Thorne bathe her face at the pump and suggested that she wait on the porch with Miss Judith while he went to the livery stable for the carriage. But this proposal Thorne flatly rejected. She was perfectly able to walk, in proof of which statement she immediately set forth. Nancy followed, and Richard, with only the briefest word of farewell, collected the little boys and hurried after her. His newly betrothed watched him out of sight with a faint frown of annoyance, which, fortunately, there was no one but Mrs. Pruitt to see. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project DF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at ValerieMoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, my name is Carol Sin. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I will be the voice of Miss Ann Tomlinson. You can find me at carolsin.wordpress.com. You can also find me on YouTube and Instagram as Carol Sin. Hi, my name is Kylie and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup Streaming Now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com, and on my Instagram, at kmorgan, with two A's. Hello, my name is Linda Moss, and I was on my mom's podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. We did a few episodes together of London and Mum. Anyway, I did Thorn, aka Cricket, on Project DF, not known as I'm not telling the real name. Thank you. I hope you like listening. Bye. Hey, everybody. My name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This. Hi, my name is Angel Black. I am from the Central Valley here in California, and you can find me at the podcast Creepily Ever After. I will be playing the characters of Mrs. Pruitt, Nancy Turner, Pennsylvania Woman, and Martha Shook. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. I want everyone at my wedding whom I hope to have for a friend. And that means practically everyone Richard knows. It's hard enough for a second wife to win a place for herself... She had not bothered to apologize when she found she had disposed Thorn from the bird's-eye maple room. 
but she had invited her to share it until the wedding. He had considered the matter settled when he departed for Greencastle. He did not return until the day before the wedding. It was his mother, not Judith, who informed him of the change in arrangements. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors, who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, r 57 9915, and had consulted directories for her heirs and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but were unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.